Sinclair in California. He sang the story. I don't know what that is. Okay, now in California there are many Jews who are from Persia, from Iran. And one of the customs, one of the customs they have One of the customs they have is that if something bad happens, a bad dream, or something like that, or when they buy a new house, a new car, uh, what they do is they take a, a chicken, a rooster, yeah. and they slaughter it. That's their custom. That's, Where is that's, it? That's a custom from yeah, Iran. No, that's something else. That's something else. But that's what they do. They just slaughter the rooster. When they buy a new house or buy a new car. Things like that. They do that to counteract uh, what's called an Ein Hov, an evil eye. That's their custom. Now, I, this is uh, this rabbi speaking, he says, I am a shoichet by uh, my occupation. Shoichet is someone who slaughters animals and roosters to eat. So he says, I'm a shaykhet. One day I get a telephone from such a family from Iran, and they live in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills. Not a poor neighbor. Right, okay. <laughs> and they told me that lately they had many bad dreams, and because I'm a shaykhet, I slaughter animals, so they asked me, please come to our house and slaughter a, a rooster for us. I came to the house, I saw they don't have mezuzahs on their doors. I immediately explained them why a house needs a mezuzah and how this helps guard the, the residents of the house. Afterwards, I slaughtered the, the rooster for them. And afterwards, I brought them mezuzahs. They paid for them. They put it on the doors and finished. A year passed by, and I get a telephone call from this family. And this time, they have a different request. Their father passed away a year, a year ago, and on the Yolt site, the Yolt site of the father, they want to say Kaddish, they just don't know the Hebrew date, they only know the English date. Mm -hmm. So they told me the English date, and I should tell them what the Hebrew date is. I checked it up and I found out that it's, they're a couple weeks late. Huh. It already passed. So I told them, listen, uh, in any case, you could come to Shul on Sunday, come to the Yeshiva in Los Angeles, in Elchanan, and uh, they'll learn some Mishnayas, that's things which are done, Mishnayas, and uh, Tzedakah, do some charity, and they'll say Kaddish. So Sunday they came, four brothers, and we went through all the things, learning and giving charity and so on. When it came to saying Kaddish, one of the brothers approached me with tears in his eyes and he says, in fact they have a fifth brother who's uh, very sick, the doctors give him six to eight weeks maximum. And they're asking me to pray for him. So I told them instead of asking me to pray for him, it would be more appropriate for them to write a letter to the Rebbe. And I explained them who the Rebbe is. Now at this point, they didn't contact the Rebbe. They asked me to visit the brother, the sick one. I came there. I saw a fellow, 26-year-old, very thin, shaking, trembling, and it looked like it, it was it was over. It didn't look like he had any life in him. There was one of the members of the family constantly standing next to his bed, 
because he tried to uh, commit suicide several times. So they just had to stand guard to watch him. Uh, he, had, uh, he had cancer, that's what he had. And it was a dangerous type that was also contagious. And I was scared to get close to him. And uh, I have to admit that I did think that there's nothing even to pray for, there's nothing to ask for. Anyway, I encouraged them, I told them to write to the Rebbe, they wrote to the Rebbe once, but they didn't get an answer. They wrote a second time, they didn't get an answer. But at least, the fact that they were asking the Rebbe for a block that helped, that the patient stopped attempting to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. Because he knew that they were asking a tzaddik for a blessing, so at least he wasn't trying to commit suicide. Then the family was complaining to me, and they were saying, why doesn't the Rebbe answer? So I told them, in order to receive an answer from the Rebbe, they need a special zechus, a special merit. And if they want a bracha, they have to make a keili. What's a keili? A vessel. A vessel. And uh, let them come to shul, let them put on tefillin and other mitzvahs, which they can do. And they accepted what I told them. They began coming to shul of Rabbi Naftali Astulin, and they even came in the weekdays, not just on Shabbos. And this kept on going for about two weeks. After two weeks, Shabbos Shoftim, which was last week, I don't know last week, but a couple years ago last week, <laughs> um, Shabbos Shoftim, they suddenly decided to bring the patient to Shul, taking a cup of water because his body was dry, cause of the disease and he always had to have every several months he had to drink when I saw him I asked the Gabbai to give him an Aliyah L'Torah call him up for the Torah and I explained that an Aliyah the Hebrew word is Aliyah Aliyah means you go up to the Torah but it doesn't just mean go up for the Torah it's an elevation in everything and that's what he needs the patient receives the fifth reading of the Torah and uh, when he finished, I approached one of the brothers and I said, everything is Hashgacha Pratis. Everything is divine providence. Everything is Hashgacha Pratis. And uh, the reading of the Torah takes place on Shabbos. But Pasha Shoifting, we only read once a year. This particular portion of the Torah. And the uh, being that he received this aliyah, he received this reading of the Torah, so the Torah is speaking to him. And I explained to him that it says in this week's portion of the Torah, which is last week, the Torah says, a prophet from amongst your brethren establish for you, and you should listen to him, speaking about prophets. And I told them that in your case, this refers to the Rebbe, and you have to travel to the Rebbe and the Torah fin finishes off, you listen to him and it will be good to you. It will be good to you if you go to the Rebbe. Mm -hmm. That's what this rabbi told him, told the patient. Uh, and what I said had an effect on them and immediately the mother and the entire family went to the Rebbe. They traveled to the Rebbe from California to New York. I couldn't go together with them. I was busy working. So I asked my 
my mechutani. Uh, that's what in-laws. In-laws. Okay. I asked my in-laws, the Zalman Shanowitz, who lives in Crown Heights, apparently, that he should go together with these Persians to get dollars from the Rebbe on Sunday. The Rebbe gives out dollars. They should go. When they went, to, when, they, when they got, they were in line. Nothing. They received blessings from the Rebbe. And they wrote a check to the Rebbe of $10,000, and they went back home, went back to California. Now, uh, I, before they went to the Rebbe, I explained them that just the mere fact that the Rebbe looks at the patient, that itself has the power to heal the patient. So when they came back home, they were sure that the patient is going to be, you know, a full shlema, will be completely well. And they right away went to the doctor just to make sure that everything's okay. They were sure, they were convinced everything's going to be okay. The doctor checked the patient and uh, the, all the tests showed that the sickness is still there, the disease is still there, nothing changed. And the family were upset. They were sure that the disease disappeared because he went to the Rebbe and it's still there. So they began complaining to me. And they said... Uh, how did you lie to us? You lied. And they even continued saying that uh, it's a business deal between you and the Rebbe. Let me give the I'll check. It's a business deal over here. It's a trick. It's a gimmick. And I realized that this whole thing, this whole trip, had a very negative effect on them. By the way, the Rebbe never cashed the check. Like that, that check was never cashed, by the way. Anyway, thank you. I attempted to, to console them, to calm them down. And I told them there are two types of miracles. There are miracles which are completely above nature. And there are certain miracles which are enclosed, so to speak, within nature. And if you want to have a miracle completely beyond nature, you have to do something above your own nature. Just like Nachshon ben Aminadav, he's the one that jumped into the, into the sea, when the sea split. Mm-hmm. But until someone jumped in there, the sea didn't split. So you have to go beyond nature, and then God performs the miracle. So I told him the same thing. You don't don't give up hope. There's no doubt that the patient will be healed. The Rebbe will give him gave him a blessing. But in the meantime, in the meantime, he has to take his medication. But you have to do something beyond beyond your nature. And they were like very, they were upset. And they were saying, time is just passing, the patient isn't getting better. And I told them, listen, it's the end of the year, and I usually go to the Rebbe for Ishana Rabba. When's Ishana Rabba? Let's see. After, uh, after is the fifth day or sixth day of Sukkot. It's before Shemini Hatzar, so Ishana Rabba. So Shana Rabbi, the Rebbe gives lekach. Okay, what's lekach? Cake. Sweet cake. Right, that's right. So I told them that lekach is a physical item, and when the Rebbe gives a blessing with the lekach, with this cake that he gives, that blessing is a real powerful blessing. It's a very quick blessing. And then I told them some miracles that happened with the lekach of the Rebbe. And that's what happened. They joined me going to New York. They came the second time to New York uh-huh. to get lekach from the Rebbe on Ishana Rabbah. Uh-huh. The Rebbe gave him special blessings 
which encouraged them. And we continued walking, and I asked them, how did you feel about the Rebbe's blessings? And they said that the Rebbe didn't respond to them. The Rebbe did not say explicitly that the disease will disappear. He did not say that, and they were upset. And they asked that I should go to the Rebbe and get an explicit statement from the Rebbe that the disease will disappear. A guarantee. <laughs> so I said, I cannot tell the Rebbe something like that. I cannot tell the Rebbe what to say. Because if I would know what the Rebbe has to say, I would be a Rebbe. <laughs> and I told them, and besides that, it's not custom to go twice to the Rebbe. Once you want once, you don't go a second time to get leka. Right, the same occasion. You only go once. So, but I suggested, I advised them, you could go again to the Rebbe after Simchas Torah, the last day of Sukkot. So after Simchas Torah, the Rebbe has a Fabrengen. At the end of the Fabrengen, the Rebbe gives Koishel Brocha, which means the Rebbe make, uh, says a blessing over wine, and then he gives to everyone part of his wine from his cup. That usually took hours and hours when thousands of people would come. And people came not just from Crown Heights, we gave from Borough Park, from, from all over they came, and that would spend hours and hours pouring wine. All over the world they came. Right. The Chsidim from Crown Heights were very hesitant to go. They didn't want to let the Rebbe stand so long. So most of the people that came were surprisingly from outside Lubavitch. Mm-hmm. Know, thousands of people and Rebbe kept on going, going, you know, hours. This is after hours of having a Fabrengen. Fabrengen began, let's say, 6 o'clock. It ended, let's say, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. And then the Rebbe would start Kishel Brocha for two, three hours or even more. Wow. Okay, so I told him, listen, the Rebbe's going to give Kishel Brocha after Simchas Torah. Why don't you get some wine? And use that opportunity to ask the Rebbe whatever you want. So that's what happened. They went to get Kishel Brocha. They went to get wine from the Rebbe. And I heard them tell the Rebbe that they want to have a blessing that the... That the, that the that the person who's sick, he should have kosher blood. It's not that he was asking kosher. No, what they meant to say was that yeah, that they should right. They should have uh, pure blood. Pure blood, but they said kosher blood, something like that. And the Rebbe said that the patient should eat kosher food. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be some misunderstanding. <laughs> the patient have kosher food. <laughs> yeah, kosher food, you have kosher blood. <laughs> right, there's, there's no misunderstanding. Love doesn't make mistakes. Right. Okay. So they answered, yes, they'll do that. And when they continued going, the Rebbe called them back and they said, and the Rebbe told them we should go to the doctor, but make sure that the food and the drink of, of the patient and the family should be kosher. And the Rebbe added, and you will inform me good news. He and the whole, so he the whole family should keep kosher, right. So there wasn't a kosher food thing. Was, I thought they, when they misunderstood it, it was a transfusion. Uh, well, they might have meant that. But they said the word kosher, okay. and Rebbe said kosher food, and Rebbe called them back, but all of them should have kosher food. And Rebbe said it not in a tone of a blessing, but in a tone of certainty. Okay. So when they received the Kaishal Bracha, the wine from the Rebbe, I explained them that uh, they didn't just receive a blessing from the Rebbe, but the words of the Rebbe is like a, um, like the doctor gives a patient a prescription. prescription, right. The difference is 
that the blessing has to be, you have to be fit for the blessing. And the prescription, if you take that, then there, there will be a recovery. Anyway, your prescription is to keep kosher, and the patient likewise, and he'll become healthy. Okay, so I, I, asked, that, I asked Rabbi Reichik and Rabbi Simcha Frankel, I think he used to live in, in Morristown, from California, that they should take him to the house and show him what it means to keep kosher, and call of Yisrael, special kosher milk, pasasol, etc. Three months passed by, and the patient gained some weight, and he felt better. But after then, particularly then, I had the impression that they're not keeping kosher 100% because I saw they're not keeping Shabbos. And if you can't, don't keep Shabbos, so you can't keep kosher 100% because any cooking done on Shabbos, that itself is not so kosher. So I was very concerned about that because they're eating food cooked on Shabbos. That was bothering this rabbi. So I was trying to find a way to get to them that they, should, they shouldn't do that. Two weeks pass by and they call me up and they say, that um, they had a store of, um, of rugs, carpets, and uh, they can't sell it. They have some problems selling it. So they want to give it as a donation. Who should they give it to? I told them they should give it to the yeshiva. Okay, so the yeshiva picked it up, and I used that opportunity to tell them Oh, so, so I asked them, how's the patient doing? And they said that the patient got a little bit worse lately because of the side effects of, of the medication. So I told them, it seems that the kashros, the kosher food, there's some problem with that. And uh, I told them what I feel about Shabbos. And they wanted to know what that means, what, what keeping Shabbos is all about. I told them, I told them information. And... Uh, and they said that if it doesn't mean 24-hour imprisonment during Shabbos, if it means 24-hour imprisonment on Shabbos, then we're not ready to do that. We're still young and we want to have a good time. Well, that's the day we go out and we're not ready to, uh, to be imprisoned during uh, 24 hours. So I saw that I didn't succeed and I tried to find a different way to get to them. And uh, I spoke to the mother. The mother who's most concerned about the health of the child, I spoke to the mother, he, he, she'll surely agree. And she agreed, the patient agreed, and at least the cooking was done according to the rules of Shabbos. They didn't cook in Shabbos. Okay, some time passes, and one of the brothers called me and they say, the doctor says that the patient is completely healthy, doesn't need any more medication. Oh. And uh, the patient recovered fully, he went back to business, and he made millions of dollars. I mean, his business will, will, will work out. Did you write another check to the That it doesn't say. Okay, now, this continued for three years, and during these three years, we attempted to get him closer to other mitzvahs, like putting on tefillin every day, things like that. But he kept on saying, I don't have to be more religious than the Rebbe. What did the Rebbe tell us? To keep kosher? Well, that's enough. You don't have to be too extreme. And, uh, but anyway, the house improved. Uh, they recognized that uh, ever since he became better because 
of the blessing of the Rebbe, they came closer to Judaism. One day I get a call from the brothers and they say that the former patient isn't keeping kashra so carefully anymore. He's drinking chalovako, not kosher milk. And they asked me to attempt to uh, convince that brother to keep kosher. I said, I have to convince him? You know the story better than I do. You know what went through him. And he's the one that knows the most how careful he, he better be. Why should I convince him? Sometime passed, and the former patient uh, had got a bad cold, nothing to do with the original disease, and he was hospitalized. They were very concerned about his condition, and they kept on calling the secretary of the Rebbe to ask a blessing. The Rebbe gave a blessing, and instead of being hospitalized for a week, the way the doctors wanted, they eventually, they let him go after two days. Several months passed by, and uh, he regained his health. But again, he fell back to chalavakum. Chalavakum means, you see, chalavakum is a little bit uh, delicate, because it's really kosher milk, according to some. According to most, it's milk that you're not allowed to drink. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like in between the kosher and not kosher, it's like the delicate issue. So it seems that he was keeping kosher, but this cholavak, that, that, was, that was difficult for him. So he said, even though I believe in the Rebbe, but my health was regained by natural means, it wasn't necessarily the blessing of the Rebbe. Mm -hmm. And I saw that the Yetzirah, evil inclination, is really working on him. Anyway, some sh a short time later, he, he, uh, his lungs were infected. Got an infection in his lungs. And he, he, was in, he was in a dangerous condition. He became weaker and he couldn't overcome the disease. This time he asked to go to the Rebbe. He, the patient himself asked to go to the Rebbe. And Rabbi Naftola Stone took him to the Rebbe. And he went to the Rebbe, he cried. And he admitted to the Rebbe that he wasn't following the instructions. And from now on he's going to do tshuva. And the Rebbe gave him a bracha, and he regained his health. And what's strange is that now, the rabbi finishes off, and the brothers and the whole family all returned close to the sky because of the patient. The patient was pushing the whole family. Okay. How old was this? 26. When it happened, it was 26. Okay, let's go to the Chumash. It was a long story. I was really hesitant if we should speak about the story or not, but um, I couldn't hold myself back. But may I ask a question on, on the milk, Rabbi? If it has the OU or the OK on it, what is the difference? OK, it's not going to have, okay, unless it's called Yisrael. OU it could have. Okay, OUD, of course. Right, OU it could have, so but that's called Yisrael. I don't eat dairy, but I just want to know anyway. Well, all you might mean that they make sure that there's no pig milk in there. Right. But the law says you need a Jew watching the milking, and that they don't have. That's called chalavakum. Chalavakum? <coughs> no, that, that is practiced. Really? Yes, people do that for taste and whatever. That is practiced in farm. To yes. improve the flavor? Right. That is done. You mean to tell me that milk that we drink? No, no, no. I'm not saying the milk that you drink, but it does happen. 
It doesn't happen. It's been checked. In other words, kosher milk, where there's a mashkiach, a supervisor, he may come now and then, like like with most of the plants, like the OU. Right, right. Yeah, but sometimes you have an OU, which is not called Yisrael. Right. That means that the mashkiach will make sure, apparently, that they won't mix any pig milk. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless... He's not witnessing. He's not witnessing, right. That makes the call of Akram. It's going on their word, you mean? Going on their word? It's, uh, no, the law, the, the law so is... Oh, you mean that there's no pig milk. That's all it means. So then if it's all you, there's no But that's not enough, because you need a Jew watching the milking itself. And that makes it Chol Yisrael. Why do you need a Jew to watch the milking itself if, if OU says that it has no pig in it? Because that was the original ruling of the rabbis. That's the fact you have to have some presence. And once they had this ruling, it never, uh, uh, it's always effective. There's more stringency, whereas other It seems that uh, pig milk is, is, is a uh, issue which, which is uh, enticing, because it's cheaper, it has flavor, and it's so easy to add a little bit of milk. It's like the easiest thing to do that. So they wanted to have someone... Well, usually they don't, especially in America. They usually don't get away with it. We're just speaking about the possibility. It's definitely not common, that's for sure. I, yeah, I heard and in America, it's against the law also. So it's not common. It is common. It's not common. But you don't know, is that it? There's a question. Right. It may or may not. That's right. Okay. What page are we? We're in chapter 6, verse 6. What page Chapter 6, verse 6. That's page 55. Chapter 6, verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 6. Okay, we're going to uh, compare verse 6 to verse 7. <coughs> and that's going to be the focus of our class today <coughs> and hopefully by today we should finish Parshas Bereshis because we did the last verse last week we're going back to these two verses so we're going to compare verse 6 and verse 7 okay, first we're going to read it and then I'm going to tell you what the plan will be verse 6 says Vayinocham Hashem you'll have to help me in translation I'm not so good at translation and it repented the Lord repented? Regretted. Okay, let's use regretted. Okay, God regretted. What was his regret? What did he regret? That he made man on earth. He regretted that. No, continue. By Levi. And it grieved him as his heart. Okay, grieved him his heart. Pains in his very core. Okay, same message. That's verse six. I want you should notice the Hebrew words of the first word of this verse. What's the Hebrew word of the first word of this verse? Vayinachem. Verse 6. Vayinachem. Oh, Vayinachem has two translations. Either comfort or change of heart, regret. Change mind. Okay, the most the <coughs> simple translation is God changed his mind and we'll leave it with that. Verse 7. God says, Where's verse 7? Now God says, continue. I will blot out the man. I will blot out man. 
who I have created. Continue, continue. Man has created the face of the earth. Okay, stop. That's it. Now look at the Hebrew word. What's the Hebrew word for regret? Nichamti. Okay, Nichamti is the same root as the first word in Pasuk Vavayinoche. The same root. That's on verse 7. Towards the end of verse 7. Now the message of these two verses appear to be that God <coughs> has second thoughts concerning creation. Because people sinned and God is about to bring a flood to destroy creation. So God is having second thought. They made man, they made a world. Um, some mistake happened. Something went wrong. He changed his mind. Okay? That seems to be the message of these two verses. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to see Rashi's method of interpretation of these two verses. And what we'll spend most of the time is the Rebbe's method of interpreting Rashi as Rashi interprets the verse. Now, before we get to the Rebbe's interpretation, I'm going to give you some introduction about the Rebbe's unique approach in learning Rashi. Mm-hmm. And we'll spend just a couple of minutes talking about that. The Rebbe was revolutionary in many aspects. Well, the whole outreach movement was the Rebbe's initiative. And when he began, it was revolutionary. People were opposed to it. And Rebbe began many, Rebbe had many revolutionaries. He had no, it was very, it was very novel. No vision. But part of his revolution was in the study of Torah itself. Rebbe has his own unique way of analysis of the Torah. Mm-hmm. A very unique way. Now one of the unique approaches of the Rebbe learning Torah is learning the simple pshat. Pshat means the meaning, the simple meaning of the Torah. Now we know that the Torah has four parts. Pshat. Pshat is the simple meaning. What does Lemmas mean? Hint. Hint. Like numerical value of words. And our books discussing different hints. Then we have Drush. Drush is interpretation. Interpretation. The tongue word is Drush, interpretation. And what's the fourth one? Sub. So the secret. And son. So the secret. And so we call it Pardis. Pardis, right. Pardis literally means. Right. What does Pardis mean? Pardis is a garden. The Torah is a garden. The garden has everything, all different types of flowers, all different types of, of, of smells, of flavors, and so on, all different colors. So the Torah is a pardis, it's a garden. It has four different dimensions. The chat, the meaning, the
It begins with a page. Pshat. Okay. Now there is an interrelationship between all four ways, methods of interpretation of the Torah. There's an interrelationship. Now, students of yeshiva spend most of their lives studying which of these four parts? No. No. Secret? No. No. Two more guesses. That's right. Drush. Drush is what people spend most of their time, most of their focus. Because Drush is, is what Talmud is. Most of Right, that's right, that's right. That's right, okay, okay. So mo- most of a life, people are involved in glush and interpretation. Now, the pshat, the simple meaning of the verses, one of the commentaries has a job giving the simple interpretation of the verses. Which commentary is that? No, that's translation. Rashi. Okay, Rashi's job is to interpret the pshat. And Rashi actually mentions more than once, Rashi says, that I have come with my work to explain the pshat. That's the only reason I'm... Mm-hmm. Now Rashi lived how long ago? He lived about 800 years ago. Approximately 800 years ago. Okay. Since Rashi wrote his interpretation on, on the Torah, by the way, Rashi also wrote interpretation on the Talmud. He wrote on the whole Tanakh, on Talmud, and he wrote other books also. Now Rashi, since he wrote his interpretation on the Chumash, 800 years passed by, there are dozens of books, dozens of books analyzing Rashi's interpretation. And there are more books analyzing Rashi's interpretation on Chumash than his interpretation on the Talmud. Now his grandson, who also wrote books, he said, I could emulate my grandfather in writing interpretations of the Talmud but I can't emulate his job on the Torah. For that, he's unique. And people, throughout the generations, whenever they learn the Torah, it's always been the custom, you don't learn the Torah by itself, you learn the Torah with Rashi. Rashi stands for, what does Rashi stand for? Right? That's right. Shlomo Yitzchaki, right. Shlomo was his name, Shlomo. The Shlomi Yitzchakat Rashi, that was his name. In short, we say Rashi, that's what he's called, Rashi, okay? Okay, now, all the books written on Rashi for the last 800 years all try to bridge Rashi's Pshat with Drush, with the Talmudic interpretation of the verses. They try to show how Rashi is compatible to the Talmud, Talmudic interpretation of the verses. That's what the job is. The first one to revolutionize the study of Rashi, the way Rashi originally meant it was the Rebbe. The Rebbe says, let's stick to Rashi and use it, use the, the rules that he laid out. His rules were pshat, simple meaning of the verse. So let's understand Rashi precisely that way. That's right, that's, that's the Rebbe's job. The Rebbe began studying Rashi pshat and pshat, and he went deeper and deeper and deeper into the pshat. And this was the revolution. It hit the Torah world by surprise. It caught them off guard. They never had such a, such a way of learning Rashi. 
It was never studied that way. It was a new approach of learning Rashi, which means Rashi does not have to be compatible to the Talmud, to the Medrash, and so on. It's a structure by itself. So the Rebbe, on one hand, caused a separation between Pshat and Drush. You should know it's a distinct way of learning Torah. And this began in 1965. This is 15 years after the Rebbe was Rebbe. The Rebbe became Rebbe in 1951. In 1965, in the beginning of that year, the Rebbe's mother passed away. That, what was her name, Rebbe's mother? Chana. Rebbe's and Chana, right. And if you, when you go to the oil, you could see she's buried right on the right side, right close to, right to the oil, right after the oil. Okay. Now, in 1965, the Rebbe began having a Fabrengen every Shabbos. Up to that point, the Rebbe would have a Fabrengen. Fabrengen means when he speaks to his followers, whoever comes. You know, in between, he speaks, there's an intermission, they sing, and they say L'chaim, and the Rebbe speaks again. Nin- up to 1965, the Rebbe would have a Fabrengen like one Shabbos per month. And sometimes two Shabboses per month. That year, the Rebbe had a Fabrengen each and every Shabbos of the year, without exception. Now, at that year, the Rebbe began analyzing the Rashi with his new approach. The new approach of learning Rashi according to the rules of Rashi, Pshat. And it began in 1965 and it continued all the way to 1988. In 1988, that's the year that the Rebbe's wife passed away. And that year, there were many changes in the activities of the Rebbe. One of the changes were that the Rebbe sort of stopped analyzing the Rashis. That was one of the changes. So it went from 1965 to uh, 1988. Whenever there was a Shabbos Fabrengen, so the Rebbe would stop and explain a Rashi. So the Fabrengen was, the Rebbe would come to the shul, he would come downstairs, he would come to the Fabrengen 1.30. And by the way, for most of the years, it was on the dot 130. As the years went by, like in the in the late 80s, it wasn't on the dot 130. It was, it was like 140 usually. But it used to be on the dot 130, that would walk in. That would walk in, he would make Kiddush, and uh, he would eat like a piece of cake. The whole Fabreng would be a piece of cake. Till Kiddush, that means he didn't eat anything. He would Fabreng until 5 o'clock sometimes 5.30, 4.30, 6 o'clock, 6.30. It depends on the winter and the summer, and depends on different things. Sometimes uh, the Rebbe wouldn't have a chance to go home. There was enough time to go home to eat anything. So the Rebbe would just stay in 7.70, right afterwards was my love, and that was the Rebbe Shabbos. Okay, the first Sikh the Rebbe would speak about the week, about the portion of the week, what it teaches us, and the second Sikh. The third talk of the Rebbe was a Maimon. Hasidic discourse. Afterwards, the Rebbe would begin tackling the Rashi. He would read the Pasuk, he would have a Chumash in front of him, he would read the Rashi, and then he would start asking questions in Rashi. Question after question, three questions, four questions, five questions, ten questions, there was no end. There were times when the Rebbe would ask twenty questions. He even had a custom during Shavuot's time. There was someone from England his name was Alan Jaffe, a cousin in England, who the Rebbe always joked with him. They had some unique relationship, and he wrote afterwards a, uh, a diary, which they have in the library, and they sell it in the books. Like, every year it was by the Rebbe, 
And when you look at the first years, you just plot from laughter. You're always making jokes with him. It's not the same as we know him. It's like a whole different personality making jokes with someone, having all types of like discussions. You know, very. Barapak, it was, it was the first book they wanted to see. You know, the different light of the Rebbe. So when he was there, so the Rebbe would ask questions, questions, then they would stop. I remember they would say, No, how many questions? You know, he, he wouldn't always catch how many questions. Say, 18. Oh, so I would ask another five questions. No, how many questions? <laughs> then after I would ask the questions, they would go open up a Zoyha. And, and the Rebbe's font interpretation of the Zohar. The Rebbe would ask questions on that. And if it's in the summer, the Rebbe would speak for the office. And they would, that would be the end of the Sikha. Then they would sing. During the singing, the Chassidim would try to see what's the answer to these questions. And they was trying to figure out the answers. Next Sikha, they would start answering. But he wouldn't answer it right away. First he would say how the other commentaries interpret it. And then he would ask questions on them and show that that's not the simple pshat. And then afterwards, the Rebbe would explain his own approach, his novel approach of the Rashi. This could take an hour, and I would be analyzing the Rashi. As the years progressed, the Rebbe shortened the time of analyzing the Rashi. Instead of going through the other commentaries, what they say, they were just saying, sure, you look at the other commentaries, you'll see what they say, and you'll see it's not compatible to Pshat, and then the Rebbe would go to his own answer. He wouldn't go through the whole analysis. He would just get to the questions and the final answer. Okay, now, what we're going to do today is analyze what the Rebbe explains in this Rashi. This is different than we usually do, because we're going to go into the Pshat, to the Rebbe's method of Pshat, and you'll have to be alert not to get lost. Okay, usually we have a nice discussion about a concept, and people like to hear concepts, but now it's going to be analysis in the Rashi. Okay, so let's be alert and, fit and, 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 and keep our heads on our shoulders. Now, if you ever need a coffee, please get your coffee. <laughs> okay, now, let's see back in verse 6. In verse 6, the first word of verse 6 is what? And he, regretted. he regretted. The Hebrew word is? Vayinachem. God regretted. So what was his regret? That he made man? And then God was upset. What does it say? He grieved. he grieved in his heart. Okay, that's verse 6. Okay, now the key word is Vayinachem, the first word of the verse. Vayinachem, God regretted. Okay. Now, in verse 7, God says, I will eradicate man that I created from the face of the earth. And at the end of the verse it says, Kimichamti Kiasisi. I regretted that I made them. I regret that I made them. Okay, that's verse 7. Now, if you look in Rashi, the last Rashi of Breshis, that's what we're going to look at. It's a short Rashi. Okay, that's in verse, now it's in verse 7. There's no Rashi, right? In verse 7, uh, you don't have a Rashi in that Chumash. Okay, you just have to listen. Okay, the last Rashi, where it says, Ki nichamte, ki asisi. I regret that I made them. Okay, now Rashi says as follows. Rashi says, I thought, I thought what to do because I made them. That's what Rashi says. I thought what I should do because I made them. That's the end of the Rashi. What is Rashi saying there? He made a decision about what? To destroy them, right? To destroy them. That was the decision. Okay. 
there's a difficulty with this Rashi. A major difficulty. The major difficulty is that the Rashi ch- apparently changed his mind. Because back in verse 6, it says, Vayinachem. Okay, we're comparing verse 6 to verse 7. In verse 6, the first word is Vayinachem. What does it mean over there, Vayinachem? Regret it. So we're to assume that the same word in verse 7, Nichanti, means, I regret it. Okay. Right, but it's the same root. I regret it. In fact, is that what Rashi says? Does Rashi say it means I regret it? What's Rashi's interpretation? Does he say I regret it? He doesn't say that. What does Rashi say? Now about verse 7. What does Rashi say in verse 7? Oh, I made a decision. That's right. I made a decision. Look at the end of the verse. Kini Kini What does Rashi say? Kini Khamti. Or repented me that I have made them. Repented. Oh, that's that's a mis that's a misinterpretation. It's a miscancellation. Mm-hmm. Rashi doesn't say I repented. That's wrong. Rashi says I have no no no. They're right. The Rashi says I have considered what to do because I made them. Right. Rashi says what does Nichamti mean? I considered. Right. You see what it says? Yeah, it's on page 57, if you have a book, Rashi says, I have considered what to do because I made them. But that's eight. No, that's seven. That's all seven. That's right, there's no Rashi on Okay? So Rashi changed the meaning of Nichanti to what we thought that it meant, the way he says it on the top. Nichanti means regret. Rashi apparently is going in a different direction. Michamti does not mean regret in verse 7. What does it mean? Consider. I consider. No, it doesn't say that. He says, I considered what to do because I made them. Okay? He says, I considered what to do. Now, why does Rashi change verse 7 from verse 6? It's the same root. And, and in verse 6, it means I changed my mind. In verse 7, I considered what to do. Why did Rashi change his mind? Furthermore, the question is stronger. In verse 6, when Rashi explains the word Vayinochem, which means that he changed his mind, Rashi gives it wrong. He says whenever it says this word Michum in scripture, it actually means change of mind. That's a rule. And one verse later, Rashi changes his mind. Instead of saying that it means God changed his mind, he says, no, I thought what to do. Why did Rashi change his mind over him? Okay, that's one of the questions that I've asked. When, when, when one regrets, when I regret something, I am considering, you know, I'm regretting, but I'm, I'm thinking about why I'm regretting it, so it's not really changing my mind. Okay, you could say that. That's a possibility. But Rashi does not say over here, he doesn't press the point that God reconsidered. He could have said the same thing he said before, God reconsidered. Here he changed. Let's get to the second question. If you look carefully at the last word of verse 7, it says, Kimi Khamti, I regret it. Last word of verse 7, Kimi Khamti, I regret. Well, I consider. What does Kiyasisi mean? Last two words. That I made them, okay? I regret it. What do I regret? Creation, or I'm considering or reconsidering creation because I made them. That doesn't make sense. God is reconsidering creation, not because he made them. That's not why. Why is he reconsidering creation? 
Because they said, like we learned several verses before, because they said, God is reconsidering creation. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, I'm reconsidering because I made them. That doesn't make sense. Because you made them, that's not a reason to reconsider. That's the second question. Two questions. Okay. Now, the answer to these two questions will get by asking a third question. That way we'll really miss you up. Okay? I'm just going to do a taste. And this isn't short. This is a taste. This is a secret that I spoke 30 years ago. I'm just going to get small taste. Now, let's look at the beginning of verse 7 now. What's the third word of verse 7? Emphasis. Okay, what does emphasis mean? Blot out. Okay, what does it say over there? That's the mission. Huh? Okay, good. Now, emcha, the word emcha, the root is moicha. Moicha. From the beginning of verse 7. Now, the word emcha we find in the Torah more than once. And it always means eradicate. Hey, this is always means. But if you look at the Nazi's interpretation of emcha, if you look at the Nazi's interpretation, he said something else by us. What's the Nazi's interpretation of emcha on this word, on this word? Dissolve. that's right. Dissolve with what? With water. Oh, when Nazi changes the word, the interpretation of Emcha, so what does it mean to the Emcha always means erase. Eradicate, destroy. Here it doesn't mean here, dissolve with water. Why does Nazi give it fit when he has to change the word Emcha for what it always means? Okay, but he, he, could, he could have left the word blank written. He didn't have to change it. Okay, how many questions do we have? Three questions, okay. Now let's get to the answer. The answer is based uh, on a simple premise. This is all again a shot in a simple meaning of the verse. The, the premise is that if it says in verse 7, it says in verse 7, God says, let's interpret the verse not, not as an archi does. This is the wrong way. And then what's the answer? Change. That's the wrong way. The wrong way is God says, and says, what's the simple meaning of them? What's that about? Literally, right? I'll erase man from, from the face of the earth. I'll erase man. Okay. So that's the problem with that. The problem is that God said that when he erased man, then, what about race? God erased man from the hill of Zoyach anymore. Right. And we can't include everybody, right? We include everybody, you can't erase. And, and Zoyach survived, right? Right. And, and they had to say, I was complaining, give it up to me, but look at Zoyach. The final old child looks at me, these people. People are so interesting. And then God makes a statement, I'll erase mankind. So if we say the simple meaning of God erases mankind, we're running into trouble. Noah was saved, and humanity still around. So Nazi could not say Emcha means what it always means. Here's the question. Let's go further. At the end of the system of Nazi, I changed my mind. Because of that, I changed my mind. You know, I made that, I changed my mind. So what did he change his mind? Let's see what that means. Then he changes his mind. What does he mean by his mind? He goes back to what? To which state? To the world? To fall again. So he's the creator of the world. Then he changes his mind. What does he mean by his mind? No more creation, right? But if I thought the creation, I changed my mind after the creation. God says there's a lot of creation. Then there's no creation anymore. Okay, that's a possibility. But what question? Okay. Okay, now the verse discusses actual mankind, animals, and so on. Okay, that's what we're talking about. 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 But all of us, we're talking about humanity. And we're going to be destroyed. Now, God is reconsidering creation. Everything has to be destroyed. No sex. Okay, now. God has to wait and deal with sin. One way is you think, you get a punishment. Those who think what? No punishment. Those who correct what? You get a sin? No punishment. That's the average method of God's education. But here he actually throws it. Okay, look at the front. The middle front is, I'm just considering the entire creation of man. Then he gets a punishment. And now he gets a punishment. And he decides to change his mind. What happens? Humanity is a punishment. And the animal is a punishment. And the animal is a punishment. 
Okay, that's a good question, which Rashi deals with also. Okay, so that's not our discussion now. That, that's a different discussion, what it means regret. Obviously, God doesn't have regret, literally, as we have it, obviously. Okay. Now, the difference between 6 and 7, if you look at the verse, you'll see one is thought and one is speech. Okay? Which is thought and which is speech? Look at 6 and 7. First one hurts people. Six, uh, repent. It's thought. And seven? Speech. Speech, right? And that's the key. That's the difference. Actions speak louder than words. That, uh, no, words speak louder than thoughts. Okay? That's the difference. When God decrees 
something, when God decrees something and He says so, it's mandatory. If He says something, it's mandatory. If He thinks, it's not mandatory, okay? That's the difference. In verse 6 it says, God regretted. Where did He regret? Where? In His thought. Where does it say thought in verse 6? It does. Find thought in verse 6. In the verse itself. No, at his heart. At his heart, right. You don't have it over there. Right. They change. In the verse it says. Okay. The word of. In his heart. The word of the Torah is Elibi. Uh, here he changed. Right, that's not right. But here it says Elibi. It says explicitly Elibi. This is heart, it's thought. Okay. In six, it's the thought. In seven, what is it? Vayoyimo. If it's Vayoyimo, then he cannot say that he changed his mind. Because if he says he changed his mind, what happens? He must obliterate that. That's it. It's over. It's gone. No, no one survives. If he thinks it, that's okay. Now, based on this, okay, based on, look at the end of verse 7 now. And you see something beautiful at the end of verse 7. The last two words. Yeah, that I made them. According to the Rebbe, verse 7 is a positive development, right? God is reconsidering that he made creation. He's not reconsidering he made creation. What is he reconsidering in verse 7? He's changing his mind from verse 6. In verse 6 he's thinking to reconsider creation. In 7 he says, I'm not going to reconsider creation. Why? Look at the last two words. Last two words of verse 7. Because I made them. So what if I made them? What does that explain? Because I made them, I'm not going to destroy them. So verse 7 is a leniency. It's a different direction than verse 6. Do you see the two opposite directions? 6 is saying in his thought, destruction, reconsideration. 7 says, didn't I make creation? If I made them, I have to be lenient with them. That's why Rashi changed his interpretation. Okay, is it clear? That answers all the questions we had. Okay? Now this is an analysis just of the simple pshat. Okay. Any questions on this? Okay, now let's go a step further. Leva continues. And Leva says, what does this teach us in our service to God? Everything we learn in Torah, the word, what does Torah mean literally? Teach. Every word of Torah is instruction. What is the instruction of this verse? Leva says like this. We have a prohibition called Lushen Hava. What's Lushen Hava? What is that? Backbiting. Talking about people. Right, talking Negativity. bad about someone. That's right. Talking bad about someone is Lushen Hava, even if it's true. Okay. Now, what about thinking bad about someone? Is that legal? No. No, that's also illegal. In certain ways, it's worse thinking bad about someone than speaking bad about someone. Now, there's something worse when you speak about someone bad than you think about someone bad. What's worse? The Gemara says, the Talmud says, that three people get the straw others spoken. Which three people? Right. Okay. Now what? You hear what she said? The person that says it, the person that hears it, and the other? The person that's spoken about. Now one of these three is not fit. Two of them we can understand. 
One of these three is not fair. Which which one is not fair? Right. Why should he suffer? The one who, the one you spoke about. The one who, why should he suffer? The one who hears, well, you're not allowed to hear Lashon Ha. Okay. You're not speaking out of here. Okay. That we can understand that parable. But the, the one you spoke about, bad about, why should he have to suffer? Well, what did that person do wrong? He must have done something for them to say something about it. It's him. bad enough that he did something. But now that you speak Lashon Ha, why should he suffer more? Okay. And it could be it's not even true the whole story. So the answer is like this. Speech, the difference between thought and speech, is thoughts you keep to yourself. Speech, like speech, you reveal something. You expose. There are times when God watches someone do something wrong and God will be quiet. If you keep it quiet down here, I'll keep it quiet up there. But as soon as you expose the man about someone, you're opening up the doors, you're exposing it. At that point, Midas Hadin, the attribute of, of, of uh, what's Din? Judgment. Of judgment, could pounce and say, oh, there's some bad, maybe there should be punishment. So that's why the one you're speaking against, he could also suffer from speaking bad. So we have to be careful, it's bad enough to think bad about someone. To speak bad about someone, it's damaging everyone involved. And the step further that Rebbe says, you can't even think bad about someone. Because who are you to pass judgment on someone else? And this is one of the professional tricks of the Yetzirah, of evil inclination. Whenever the Yetzirah wants to create divisiveness and separation between people, what's the first trick of the Yetzirah? First trick is Lashon Hala. Speak bad about this person. And the one who's listening is going to believe you. That's the other trick of the Yitzhah. And then you create this animosity and this division and so on. So we have to be super careful not to speak Lashon Hala. And if we hear Lashon Hala, the law says don't believe it. At least have a doubt. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. You can't say that I heard something bad about someone, it's true. How do you know it's true? And unfortunately this happens time and again. People are not aware of this. Using the telephone, hello, you know what this person did? And 90% of the cases, the whole thing is not true. And even if it's true, it's half true. And some more salt and pepper was added to it. So this is teaching us that when God was thinking about something, He did not allow that to come to speech. Now there's another part I wanted to speak about, which also is connected to this. We'll have to speak about a different time about free choice and the awareness of God. That, that also is connected to this and God's awareness of, 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 our, of our activities okay we should all have a good week a lush and toy week number said yes and try to get back and talk about it. You can take it.